Amen. How's it going today? Good? Um, we're in a, a little series within our bigger series, which is that uh, we're on discipleship, and right now we're going through five uh, messages in Matthew of Jesus' major discourses, okay, teachings. Um, so this is the second one, and it's, it's Matthew chapter 10. Now, uh, the main teaching of Matthew chapter 10 um, is that there will be conflict in the world when you become a Christian. Has anybody ever experienced that? Thank you, amen. Okay, so I have a theory, okay? Um, I have a theory about why it seems, and it just maybe this just seems like this to me. Maybe this isn't true for everybody at all, okay? But it seems like a lot of Christians are not as happy as they ought to be, okay? I have a theory about why that is, and, and not just um, a little bit unhappy, but maybe a lot less confident than they should be. And so the theory goes like this, that um, we have these expectations, and we have these um, experiences. So our expectations versus our experiences, when our experiences don't meet our expectation, the gap in between is where we find ourselves to be unhappy or to be, um, I don't know, a little bit concerned, questioning, doubtful, fearful, etc. Okay, so what happens is that as a Christian, when you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, right? You, you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and God says that when that happens, when you have put your faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes to live within you and that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? And so there's this idea that when I have peace with God because I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior and the Holy Spirit comes to live within me, that He will begin to just flow into you like all these good feelings, right? No? Nobody expects that. One person, thank you. So I, I don't know to what degree we expect that, but there's some sense that if I have received God, I'll have peace with God, and that peace with God should in some way kind of filter out into how I feel about everything else and how I feel about the world and how I feel about myself, that I will be in some ways a very well-adjusted person in the world, right? And the reality is, okay, that's some, maybe a little bit of the expectation. The reality is that we tend to still have fear and concern and doubts and pain and sadness and all the rest of it, anger and envy and whatever. We still have those things and we're like, what's going on here? That gap between my experience and my expectation sometimes is so big that there's a lot of room for there to be a lot of negative feelings in there. The other thing is that to some degree, now this is an uh, a, a unfortunate um, reality of karma kind of filling our world with, with a false uh, theology. People think that karma is, is the way that the world operates. And karma means that if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Right? If I do the right thing, I get the right result. If I do the wrong thing, I get the wrong result. And that's just fair, and it seems fair, and it sounds fair. Um, but as a Christian, that's not how the world operates. But we have a kind of this residual idea that it should operate in some way, shape, or form like that. And so we think that if I give God my life, then what He is then obligated to do for me is to put a force field of protection around me, right? I won't have um, problems. I won't have pain. I won't have uh, diseases. I won't have financial issues. I won't have broken relationships. I won't have, etc. Like, and and I pray constantly, and I'm sure you do too, for your kids, your grandkids, for your, your people in your life that you love. You're just, I'm praying all the time. God, uh, would you protect them? Would you keep them from evil and accident and injury and illness? Would you just watch over them and keep their life safe? And would you watch over their heart? Would you help them to know you? And I'm praying that for them. I'm praying that for myself as well. And to some degree, you think that I should somehow experience this kind of force field of protection. Is anybody 
think that at all? And what the scripture teaches us is that in this world, have you heard this before? You will have what? Trouble. And the reality of what it means to have peace with God is not the same as what it means to have peace in the world. There's a very big difference between those two things. And that's where I think a lot of people um, get a little bit confused. And so I wanted to help us to see this. You've seen this illustration before, um, but I'm going to steal it uh, again. But what is happening for a lot of people is that, um, let's say that this rope um, represents your life, okay? And what we're doing is we're focusing on this tiny little red part. This is the amount of time that you're going to spend on the earth, okay? And this is a wild exaggeration of how big that should be. It should be microscopic, okay, compared to eternity, which is going to go on and on and on forever. But our focus tends to be on this tiny little segment of of a moment on earth, the little bit that we're going to experience in the here and now, the few decades that we get to spend on this planet, compared to the eternity that we're going to experience forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And this rope would have to be eternally and infinitely long for it to even begin to help us to understand the reality that the difference or the comparison between what we're focused on right now to what we should be focused on really is eternity. But we have our focus on the minor little segment of time that we're going to spend here. And then we forget about or we ignore or we don't really care much about what's going to happen in eternity because what's happening right now seems so important. And what Jesus is teaching us, what he's going to teach us is that the here and now has a value and has an importance, but it should be lived in light of the eternity where we're going, what's going to happen forever and ever and ever. And if we place our value on the relationship that we get to have with God forever, then it will impact how we understand, live, and value the life that we have in the here and now. And so let's see what the Word of God has to say to us about that. In Matthew chapter 10, let's pick it up in verse 34. If you have your Bible, please stand with me as we read God's Word this morning. Matthew 10, starting in verse 34, says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you um, constantly, through your word, have told us what to expect in this life, in this world, that there will be trouble, there will be difficulty, there will be division, there will be conflict with Uh, within ourselves. There will be conflict within our families. There will be conflict within our relationships at work, with the students that we go to school with, with the people that we are surrounded with, the people that are our very friends. There will be conflict. We thank you that uh, through that, Lord, you are doing something miraculous and unique, that you are revealing yourself the, the wonder of knowing Jesus, the, the power of having salvation in your name, uh, the change of heart, the change of mind, the change of life that then um, produces in some way um, a sense of confusion and conflict, Lord, in the, in the world because the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't grasp just how 
powerful the change really is, Lord. But through that witness, Lord, we pray that more people would come to know Christ and would receive that change even within themselves, Lord. And we pray that as we have peace with you, that that peace uh, would be a light. It would be a, uh, a guiding light to you, Lord, to this world, that the world would see what it means to know you. Um, but in that, Lord, I pray for confidence, strength, boldness, Lord, of your people to be able to be willing to continue uh, to, to wrestle through the difficulties of life in order to win out, persevere, and help people to see you clearly um, and savingly. Lord, we thank you that you offer these things. We're, we're going to give you praise, Lord. Give us insight into your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, when we deal with the issue here, um, before I get into the context, we're going to kind of walk through the entire chapter, uh, but I want to give you just a, a basic idea of the whole scope, okay? There, there is a, a, a looming problem, which is the issue of um, the law of non-contradiction. Anybody ever heard of the law of non-contradiction? Okay, it's basically a philosophical law, and a law means that it's unbreakable. It, and what it refers to is the idea that two things that are opposites cannot be true in the same relationship with each other and both still be accurately true. One or the other has to be false. Okay, um, And so there's this law of non-contradiction that we're kind of struggling with when we see that Jesus says that I have come to bring a sword, not peace. I did not come to bring peace. But then we also know that Jesus is the prince of what? So how is it that he can be the prince of peace and, and say that I have not come to bring peace? How does that work? In our minds, that sounds like a contradiction. But we're talking about the reality of Jesus has come to bring peace with God which will automatically and, and um, almost constantly or, or consistently bring a conflict in the world. So it's not the same peace. We're not talking about peace. Uh, I've come to uh, bring peace to the world, and I've come to bring uh, conflict to the world. He's saying, I've come to bring peace with God, but it's going to cause conflict in the world. It's absolutely not a contradiction. In fact, it is, it is an absolute truth that if you will have peace with God, you will have conflict in the world. But if you want peace in the world, then you can't really have peace with God. Okay? You can't have both. You have to choose. Which one is more valuable to you? Do I want peace with God or do I want peace in the world? The problem with peace in the world is that it is a, 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 an illusion. Uh, it's not real. It's temporary. It's conditional. It is based on circumstances and circumstances that are constantly changing. So you might have this one sliver of peace, which is that you can sin without feeling guilty if you reject peace with God. You can sin without feeling guilty. Now, that's not even exactly accurate because at some point what's going to happen is that sin has its own built-in consequences and you will have regret because you will destroy your life, you will destroy some things around you, you'll destroy some things within yourself, and you'll begin to regret some things in your past. So you might not have godly um, conviction, you might not have guilt in the sense of you've sinned against God, but you will still have pain and suffering that comes from a natural consequence of sinning. And yet, even in that, people will still choose that over having peace with God and having a sense of conflict in the world because to them it still seems preferable to, to think that I can still do whatever I want, right? And not only do you not even really have um, a lack of guilt for sin, you, you have all the pain and consequences that come from sin, and you have all the conflict that's going to happen because we're human beings and people are sinful in their nature, and so you're still going to have division, you're still going to have arguments, you're still going to have resentments, you're still going to have 
unforgiveness, you're still going to have issues within all those other relationships, all those other realms, whether it's your work or your school, your personal life, your home life. All You're still going to have conflict in the world, even if you reject God and try to gain peace in the world. You're still going to have conflict in the world. So it's a lose-lose situation. You lose a relationship with God, and you lose all the rest of it in the world as well. It's, it's, like I said, it's an illusion. And this is where Satan loves to try to pull people into this false sense of, I can kind of walk through life without having to think much about eternity or God or uh, ethics or morals, and I can just do what I want to do. And in the end, it's a bait and switch, and you end up miserable. So what Jesus does is he gives us a correct ethic and understanding of spiritual realities, and he brings us into his definition, his understanding of what it's going to look like as you begin to walk through these things in your life. And so it starts in Matthew chapter 9, actually. If you go back to verse uh, 37, it says, he's, he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking about um, the fields being ripened to harvest, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest who, to send out laborers into his harvest. And so he's saying, okay, it's like Illinois in October. Okay, you look around, everything is yellow. It's ready to be harvested. You know when the corn and the beans get yellow, that harvest is coming soon. He's, and so he's looking across the fields and he's saying, okay, guys, take a look. It's harvest time. It's ready. So it's not so much about the people being ready. It's about God sending workers out to gather what is ready to be harvested. And so the very next thing is Matthew 10. And he says, he called to him 12 disciples and and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then it goes into some more detail about that. It says that they had the authority to heal diseases. They had the authority to cleanse the uh, leprosy. Okay, so that they could not only heal the disease, but that person was made clean, ceremonial clean. And then they had the authority to raise the dead. Okay, so they could go around and tell a dead person to come alive, and they would come alive. And they had the authority to cast out demons. This is the authority that Jesus gave to his disciples. He placed on them, um, whether that was apostolic that continued on for their lifetime or for this mission, Okay, there's a little bit of a question about exactly what extent their authority went to. Um, but here's what's interesting. They came back from their mission. And I'm skipping all the way to the end, and I'll come back through. They came back from their mission, and they testified to the Lord about all that they had done. And you know what it specifically says that they were really excited about? That they were just overjoyed with, and they began to talk to Jesus about their... They said... Even the evil spirits listen to us in your name. They have to do what we say in the name of Jesus. And, and I, here's what I take away from that. Temporary physical um, bondages are far less important than spiritual bondage. To the extent that the disciple, uh, one of the apostles might say uh, to this dead person, come alive, and they came alive, they're going to die again. How long will they live? They may live a long life. You know, they might live to be 100 years old. Who knows? But eventually they will die again. In a few decades, they're going to be dead again. But what's going to happen for their eternity is what's more important. And the, the disciples, they understood, they grasped the weight of what it meant to be delivered spiritually. And that's what they were excited about. And Jesus says, okay, settle down. (laughs) I'm glad that you're excited about that, but you should be more excited that your names are written in heaven. So he takes it even a step further that it's, it's wonderful to be released from spiritual bondage, but guess what? Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and that's the thing that you should be most excited about in the world. Listen, you understand that what he was saying to them is your reality if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's, that's your personal, permanent destiny to go to heaven and to live with God in peace forever and ever and ever. 
And when you see that that is where you're headed and that's where you are guaranteed to go based on his promise, not your good works, but based on what he did for you, then can you live this little segment of your life in glory and honor to him for knowing that that is your destiny? I'm going to have peace with God. I'm going to enjoy a personal relationship with God without sin, without fear, without corruption, without any division for all eternity. And for now, I'm going to have a little bit of conflict. But for then, it's going to be more awesome than you can even imagine. So he points back to that. But before they go on their mission, he gives them a whole chapter of training and teaching about the conflict that they're going to experience in the world. And so he begins in verse 5, and he says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, or enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. A couple things that are important to understand there. One is that they were not to go to the Gentile people. They were places in the region that they could have gone to, the Decapolis. They could have gone to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, they could have gone to Samaria. All those places were, were within a day's uh, journey of where they were right then and there. But he says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And so what that means is within the region that he had been preaching, doing his miracles, Galilee, which is where he did most of his, his ministry, this area, go to those people who've heard, who've seen, who've witnessed, who are talking about, who are excited about Jesus. He says, go to the, the people, the, um, the populations that are most receptive to the gospel. They already have heard. But what does he call them? What does he say that they are in verse 8 or verse 6? Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Why do sheep get lost? Because they're stupid? What did you say? <laughs> here's, here's what I, I have to tell you. I, you don't want to hear it. When God looks at you, he loves you. That's not the bad part. But he sees you as a, a sheep. And I know that that's, you know, hurts your heart and you feel offended by that. But here's what you have to understand about sheep. They get lost for two reasons, maybe more, but at least two reasons. One is that they are prone to wander. They're prone to wander. They, they get distracted. They lose sight of the, the group. They get lured off by their own distraction. And you and I, as human beings, are like that. You and I, every single one of us, have a tendency to wander. We go after what we want, what's distracting to us, what makes us busy, what, thinks, what we think will make us happy, and we begin to wander away from the safety of the, the herd. And, and so what that looks like in general, we're talking about Christianity, the church, how often, how easy, and how, how frequent we see this happen. People begin to be, be lured off by everything under the sun other than what's happening in the church on a Sunday morning. And we're not legalistic about this. We're not trying to shame or guilt anybody into making sure you're in church every single week. But we do have to say that it's easy to find other things to do on a weekly basis than to be in God's house worshiping the Lord. It's easy to get distracted and wander off. And the more often, the more frequent, and the more consistent you are in wandering off into something else that's not worshiping the Lord, the, the harder it's going to be to get back into the group, get back into the, the sense of community of what it means to be in the church. It's just easy to, to continue to be lost than it is to get back into a safe place. But it's, it's not even just that, okay? As a pastor, I got to talk about that, but it's really about wandering spiritually, getting distracted by things that are not uh, building you up in your faith. And we begin to wander morally. You begin to wander into areas of distraction that, that aren't building you up. And before you know it, when's the last time that uh, you've read the Bible? When's the last time you spent some time in prayer? Before you know it, you're, you haven't been uh, in a place spiritually where you want to be. You're way off in, in some other dangerous area. 
So sheep wander because it's their natural tendency. And we have to be aware of that because you and I are each one prone to that. So I'm conscious that that's my tendency. I have to intentionally make sure that I'm, I'm wrestling my attention back to the things that are important. And I was just thinking about and praying about that even today. God, help me to connect with you for your sake and not just because it's my job. I mean, I, I spend time in prayer and in God's Word every day. But sometimes I, I do it because I know that I'm supposed to do that. And not as much because, God, I just want to know who you are. And it's okay to have a discipline, but let's make sure that we're getting our heart back right with the Lord because it's the right thing to do. We wander. But here's the other thing is that um, sheep get lost not just because they're prone to wander, but because they also have imperfect shepherds. You have a perfect shepherd in Christ. Amen? He says that he will not lose any of his sheep. He says, the, the sheep that the Father has given me, um, I have, and, and I will not lose a one of them. And I believe that that is referring to those who are in Christ, who have put their faith in Jesus, who have salvation in his name, that he's not going to lose any of his sheep. But you have under-shepherds that are imperfect. In fact, every under-shepherd, and under-shepherd means your pastors, your teachers, your spiritual leaders, it may be your parents, it may be your Sunday school teacher, it may be a mature Christian who is uh, helping you, guiding you in your faith, it may be somebody that you refer to for spiritual questions, it could be somebody that you like who has written books or who preaches sermons online or whatever. Every under-shepherd is imperfect, and if you place all of your hope and 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 confidence in an under-shepherd, then you're probably going to be um, let down, right? And it is a shame that so many people, and I do say so many because there are a lot, there are a lot of people who have left, who have left their faith behind because they put so much emphasis on an under-shepherd, they were disappointed by how somebody treated them, how it felt to be in the church, how this person said something, how they didn't do something, how they got neglected or they whatever. And their faith wasn't necessarily on the shepherd, it was on the under-shepherd, under and they got disappointed. And, and let me tell you that every single under-shepherd is imperfect, and if you put all of your hope in somebody like that, then you will be disappointed, and make sure that you're not doing that. Okay, I'm just giving myself room to fail. <laughs> so he sends them out to the lost sheep of Israel, and here's what you're going to find. Okay, this is the most receptive group. This is the group that knows the Bible. This is the group that's heard about Jesus. This is the group that has seen the miracles. These are the people that should be all you know, ready and receptive and, and excited about the, the gospel. And they come in and they say, the, the kingdom of heaven is near and they can do a miracle. And these people are like, yeah, that's awesome. And yet he says that you will be rejected and you'll find conflict even in those realms. Anybody ever have a conflict in your home? Anybody? No? You realize that no matter how receptive and close in value and loving and how much in agreement you are with people that are in your, even in your own home, your own spouse, the person that you chose to spend the rest of your life with or the children that, that you chose and that God blessed you with in your home, you're still going to have conflict in those relationships. Take that to one step out to the church. These people that we are in agreement to what the the Bible says, and we're in agreement that Jesus is Lord, and we're in agreement of how the Holy Spirit works, and many things of theology, not all. We're still going to have some conflict and some personal preferences and some personality differences and things that we're struggling with. We're, we're going to have those things, right? And then you go beyond that, and you have the, the greater church, and then you have the, this, you know, the, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Episcopalians and the whatever, you know, whatever group it is, whatever tribe. And we, the farther out you get, the more it seems like, well, we're not really as 
connected and in agreement and, and in unity as we should be. We're human beings that we're, we're going to have some differences. And where we draw the line is when somebody who says they're Christian has stepped over into an area of absolute rejection of what the Bible says it means to be a Christian. On the major things, we're going to be in agreement and we're going to work together. But when it comes to a point of, of what we would say heresy or apostate belief or something that is anti-biblical or is contradictory to God's word, and we say, I can't have fellowship with, with that group at that point. And I think that Jesus is saying, you can kind of expect that even among people that are similar to you and believe similarly to you, you'll still, you're still going to have some conflict. Be aware of it. Don't get bogged down by it. If, if there's no peace there, walk away. We don't have to fight over it. We just, this is the truth. This is what we believe. And if you're not going to go there with me, then I'm just going to go over here. But then he goes beyond that, okay? And he says, I'm going to send you out as sheep amongst wolves. And he's referring to the Gentile mission. There's going to there's going to be a day when the mission goes from the most receptive to those who are not receptive at all, okay? And now you're going to go to groups of people that they don't know God's word, they don't believe Jesus, they don't even know who he is, they, they have no sense of godly morality or biblical morality, they're doing what they want to do, they believe in other gods, they worship idols and all kinds of other stuff, and you're going to have to bring in the truth of God and the, the witness and the reality of what God's word says. You're going to have to bring people from the point of absolute zero knowledge into a sense of who God is and then bring them to a point of salvation. Okay, That's, that's going to be a whole different set of, of people and rules and, and ways and methods that you're going to work with. And what he says here, I'm sending you out as uh, sheep amongst wolves, and this is, I believe where the church is in America today, okay? The, the culture um, of the 21st century, and probably, I, I don't know if I would have even said this as much uh, 20 or 30 years ago, as much as it is now, okay? But, but we are very quickly departing from almost anything that, that even resembles biblical faith in this country as a culture, Okay, the culture is running away from God. And as Christians, he says, guess what? I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves, so you need to be aware. You need to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. You've heard that before? Be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. It means that you need to understand the danger that is most likely going to happen when you put yourself into a situation where ungodly people are angry at you for your faith. How do you respond to that? Here's what he says in uh, verse 20, uh, 25. He says, if they have called the master of the house, Jesus, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebul is another name for Satan. If they say Jesus is Satan, how much more are they going to call the servants satanic or evil or wrong? Or, and, and it's interesting that he uses the word malign because malign means that you have an intention to cause harm or pain to that person physically, mentally, or emotionally. You actually, it's not just a rejection like, okay, you believe that, and I believe this, and you go your way, and I'll go my way. It's fine. We'll just kind of exist in our different realms, and we'll leave each other alone. The idea of tolerance, okay, that's, that's not what we're dealing with. Malign means that your faith and your way of life and what you believe and how you live offends me so much, I want to hurt you. And Jesus says, as Christians, in a culture like that, um, you're going to experience, on some level, some degree, uh, what we're calling persecution. You will experience that. And right now, it may be more or less 
on an emotional or an intellectual level for us. Um, and what that means is that you and I, when we uh, proclaim our faith in Christ, uh, we may get some pushback. Um, it's probably not physical in terms of getting beat up or, or arrested or your property taken or anything like that. Not, not at this point. Uh, it's more of a matter of um, you're intolerant, you're uh, a fear monger, you're, um, you're hateful, your language is, is hateful. It, that's what people say about Christians. If you don't accept this way of life, if you don't accept this identity and how it works out and how people live and how they feel, then you're hateful and you need to be silenced. And in fact, it's going to become illegal to say the things that the Bible says because the Bible is not as tolerant as what, um, what people want it to be. As soon as you as a believer begin to feel like you cannot verbalize what you believe, then you've entered into the realm of persecution. Now, you need to be wise as serpents, meaning that you need to be able to navigate whether or not this conversation needs to continue or do I need to stop because now I'm actually trying to force somebody to believe what I believe instead of declaring what I believe and letting them make up their own mind. But you also need to be as gentle as doves. What does that mean? When you're as innocent as a dove or gentle as a dove, it means that you refuse to be personally offended by people rejecting what you believe. Pretty easy, right? How many of you get offended when... Somebody teases your kid. Does that offend you? Or says something negative about your spouse. Or when somebody pokes fun at your appearance. Or anything else, okay? I mean, we're so quickly and easily offended. What, what this says is that um, as you live your life out as a Christian in front of other people and they begin to not only reject you and your faith, but malign you, actually speaking negatively against you and trying to hurt you, that your response is to not take personal offense, but to understand that they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. It's not about you at that point. It's not about who you are. It's not about how you look. It's not about how you talk. It's really about the fact that they don't like what it is that you're pointing to. When I was... Um, newly saved. When I was in college, uh, I had a job back home, and I would come back from college over breaks and, and uh, uh, during summer, and I would work. And I remember the first time I came back after I got saved, I came back to work, and uh, the, right away, I think within the first week of just kind of being back in that mix of people, um, I, I heard from some people, you've changed. And it was not a positive. <laughs> you used to be cool, and now you're a jerk. <laughs> I mean, it was, I didn't want to do what they were doing. I didn't want to engage in those conversations. I tried to remove myself from, from those areas, it, whether it was temptation or just it didn't feel right to me anymore. I, I didn't want to participate in what I thought was not right. And it was just like that set some people off. They didn't, they didn't like it. They didn't like me because of it. And what's going to happen is that when you as a Christian begin to live out the Christian ethic um, in your life, you think, man, this, is, this should be good. Honesty and, and forgiveness and generosity and, and hard work ethic and, um, and kindness and, and all these wonderful things that, that God has placed into the heart of a Christian and what it means to, to look like Christ. But what happens is that the world sees that you are trying to live in a way that is honoring to God, and it makes them feel guilty. They, they feel guilty, and that's, that was what was happening with me, that the people that I used to hang out with and do things with and party with and all the rest of it, now that I'm not doing that, just the fact that I won't participate makes them feel like, like they're being judged. I wasn't judging them, 
but they felt judged, and they didn't like it, and they didn't like me because of it. And then if you go even beyond that to the point where people really understand what it is that you believe, because you and I believe that there's only one way to the Father, right? Exclusively through Jesus Christ, and that anyone who rejects Jesus has rejected eternal life in heaven, which means that if you don't know Jesus, then, then you are destined to go to hell. That exclusivity means that some people, when they grasp that, and I'm not sure that many people do, but some of them do, they think that you think that you're better than they are. You, you don't think that, but they think that you think that you're better than them, that you, you figured it out, and you're now perfect, and, and you get to go to heaven, but I'm just the sinner over here that I'm going to go to hell. How dare you think that, feel that, believe that? And if you think that that's only going to result in kind of a mild emotional rejection, then you're, then you're kidding yourself. That's not what the Bible says, and that's not what you're going to experience. You're going to experience at some point a sense of real anger about that. Now, the point is this. If you don't become aware of that, it could damage your continued walk with the Lord. Because as soon as you start to feel people saying, how dare you, you're judging me, etc., okay, you've rejected me, you believe something that's so exclusive and, and all the rest of it, then you could start to say, well, gee, that doesn't seem right. Maybe I shouldn't believe that, and maybe I should be more accepting. Maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe, maybe all roads do lead to heaven. Maybe it's not so exclusive. Maybe Jesus isn't the only way, and you begin to back off your faith in order to make room for their false idols. And it's not going to save them, and it's not going to help you. But that's where the, the tension and the conflict begins to be a little bit reduced in the world, and, and what, you, what you've done is you've removed yourself from the peace of God as well. And he, said, he warns us over and over this is the way it's going to be, guys. You've got to understand that when you put your faith in Jesus, you're going to have some conflict in the world. So he says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what he says is there's going to be conflict in the world. There's going to be conflict in the church. There's going to be conflict even within your own homes. Now, he goes into the most important relationships that a human being can have, parents and children. Your child may resent you. In fact, he says, a father will have a child put to death. A child may have a parent put to death based on this division. It's, it's unimaginable to even think that somebody that I love so much could possibly be in such a, a, a conflict. He says this, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Okay, so you and I are so familiar with crosses. A cross is a beautiful thing. It, it equals Christianity. We love the cross. We decorate ourselves with it. We hang it on our walls. We hang it in our homes. We wear it around our necks. We put it on T-shirts all the way. We think crosses are beautiful, wonderful things. And, and this is the first time Jesus mentions the cross in the book of Matthew. And it would have been such a shock to the disciples. Because you understand that the cross, in their mind at this point, is Rome's um, instrument for torture. Not just death, but torture and death. What it was was a symbol of Rome's authority over the individual. They had the authority to put you to death. They had the ability to do it, and not just that, but they would require that you carry your own cross to the point of your execution. So they have displayed for the world. Why was it that Jesus carried his cross all through town to the outskirts of town to, to uh, be hung on his own cross? so that Rome could say, look what we can do. We are in complete authority, and we will make you carry your own instrument to your own death. You have submitted 100% to the authority of Rome. And Jesus says, okay, I want you to get this picture, guys. This is what it means for you to follow me. 
for you to believe in Jesus, for you to have faith in Christ, for you to have Jesus as your Lord, it's unqualified allegiance. It means that he is 100% over your life, every aspect of your life, your mind, your body, your heart, your soul, your activities, your money, your work, your children, your family, your play, everything. He is in authority over all of it. He says you have to stop compartmentalizing. You have to put your faith in Jesus completely and let him be Lord over all of it. That's what it means to carry your cross. Luke says you have to carry your cross every day. Every day. So I wish, and, and you know, there's, there's a different aspects to this, but I wish it were just like I chose at this point to, to pick up my cross and follow Christ and that's it. On one hand, it's like, yes, when you decide to follow Jesus and you give him your life, it's, it's a permanent thing that he is your Lord and you are saved. But he says to do it every day, meaning that I have a tendency to put that thing down and do my own thing, right? I have that tendency to wander. And I, every day I have to come back to, okay, Lord, you're Lord of my life again today. And if I've messed up, then I'm sorry, I'm giving it back to you today. And whatever part of my life, whatever little piece that I think that I can control, I'm sorry, I'm giving that back to you. And if there have been parts of my heart that I've held off to the side and I thought that I could kind of hide from the Lord, I'm saying, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to give that part to you. You're the Lord of all of it. He says, if you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. And if you lose your life, you're going to find it for my sake. And, and this is the whole deal. This is all of it. When you try to hold on to your life in this world, then what you've said is, God, I don't need you. But if you say, God, I need you, you give him your life, then he's going to make something out of it. And there will be moments of conflict, and there will be divisions, and there will be problems, and there will be people that you're going to you're going to have issues with. Your values are going to be different than the world's values. You're going to find that there's a tension. There's a tension even within your own heart. You don't even agree with yourself all the time. Paul says it in, in Romans 7 that all the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he says, who's going to save me from this wretched life? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. I don't even agree with myself on everything, but I, I'm putting my life in his hands. And then he says... Here's how it works. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives you receives me. Even if they give a cup of cold water to one of my disciples, they will certainly get their reward. And what that means is it's the ethic of influence. I'm going to put my life in God's hands, and whatever he wants to do with it, he's going to make the most out of it. So not only do I have the confidence and the benefit of getting to go to heaven... That's a wonderful thing. But by seeking to honor him with my life, somebody else might get to go to heaven too. The people that you rub shoulders with, I don't rub shoulders with. The people that you work with, I don't work with. The people that are in your home, they're not in my home. You have an influence over people, your witness, your testimony, your faith, the, the values of Jesus Christ that are working out in your life, those things begin to impact other people, and it does cause conflict. But when people see the reality of a changed life, some people, not all, I wish it was all, but some people will see that and say there's something going on. All the garbage of, of sin in this world it is not satisfying. Whatever you have, it's different, and that's what I'm looking for. Some people will find eternal life because you were consistent in living out your faith in front of them. They, they might reject you, but if they receive what you believe, then they receive eternal life. What else, what more do you have to offer than that? Why would we not be bold in sharing it? What, what kind of conflict am I afraid to get into when I can maybe somehow by my life witness to the point where somebody could have life. Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord. There's so much more. You've paved the way. You did it. You walked through life 
willing to receive all the hate, the scorn, the rejection of the world that you created, people that you made in your, your own image, people that you loved dearly, that you even called out from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You refused to be personally offended by their seeming inability to accept a wonderful gift of eternal life. But even some of those folks, even some of those people who are hurling insults at you on the cross came to know you later. And Lord, we're praying that the people that are in our life, Lord, that are struggling, some are, are angry, whether they're angry at us or angry at you. Lord, even, even many of those can have a change of heart. And Lord, that's what we're praying for, that we would have the courage to be willing to continue to speak the truth in love, whatever it might result in this world, knowing that it can impact the next in a powerful way. And Lord, would you give us the peace that surpasses understanding? When, when life doesn't seem to make sense, when circumstances are overwhelming, would you place in our hearts a peace that nobody could possibly comprehend, that we might have the, the glow on our faces of the knowledge of, of having a relationship with you, a countenance, Lord, that is joyful in the midst of trouble. We give you praise, Lord. I pray that anyone, anyone here today who doesn't know you would, would step into a relationship with you with their eyes wide open, wanting what you have to offer, Lord, I pray for their sake, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you this morning, again, always, but if the Lord is moving on your heart, and I'm going to say one of two things. For the first time, to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Um, the Bible says it this way. It says, today is the day of salvation. And, and what I take that to mean is, right now is the only moment that you know for sure that you have. You don't have tomorrow. You don't know that you have an hour from now. You have right now. And if the Lord is moving on your heart, then you need to respond to that right now. Amen? Secondly is maybe the Lord's moving on your heart again. Maybe you've been one of the lost sheep that's been wandering, and you know it, and you need to come back, and you know you need to come back, and the Lord is impressing on your heart to get some courage to live for Him, and you want to recommit um, yourself to doing that. The altar is a place for that to happen. You can do it where you're at. You can do it when you get home, but we pray that right now is the time that you would respond to the Lord as he's moving. Amen? Let's stand and sing.